study. I hope you have enjoyed this study as much as I and the other teachers have. These two letters have so much in them. Many people consider the book of 1 Peter as their favorite book in the Bible. And I think through this study, we can understand why. I'm going to be wrapping up this study with the final chapter in 2 Peter, chapter 3. It is only 18 verses, but covers a lot of important material. So let's get started. Let's look at verses 1 to 2. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Here we have Peter returning to the purpose of his letter, which is to stir his readers to action by reminding them of truth. In chapter two, he is focused on the false teachers, and now he's going to focus on one of the false teachings to which his audience is being exposed. The false teaching is that Jesus will not return. He is reminding his readers of the words spoken to them by the prophets and the apostles in order to stir them to action. But what action is he trying to encourage them to take? He wants them to live in such a way that they are preparing for Christ's return. Verse 2 introduces two potential areas of false teaching. The first area is what the holy prophets taught. This refers primarily to the sections of the Old Testament that spoke of the promise of the second coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. This subject was a favorite target of the false teachers. Essentially, Peter said, do not forget what the Old Testament writings emphasized. Do not allow the influence of false teachers to persuade you that the second coming will not occur. The second area that needed protection from the false teachers is addressed in the words, the, and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Here, the word command refers to the moral demands of the Christian faith, primarily Jesus' command of love, which was reaffirmed by the apostles. In John 13, 34, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. John 15, 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Paul tells us in Romans 12, 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And in 1 John 3, 11, John writes, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Christ's followers are to love one another as we await Jesus' second coming. Let's move on. Verses 3 and 4. Knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things have con- are continuing on as they were from the beginning of creation. Many people in Peter's day, and even in ours, follow false teachers and consider biblical beliefs especially belief in the second coming, to be foolish. In the last days refers to all the days between the first coming of the Messiah and the second coming. The coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost signaled that the last days prophesied in the Old Testament had in some sense begun. Characteristic of that time frame, however long it will be, is the fact that people will scoff at the doctrine of the second coming. 
Scoffing means to make fun of someone, to mock someone. It describes the characteristic attitude at that time toward the second coming. False teachers argued that the promise of the second coming had been delayed so long that we may safely conclude that it would never happen. As far as they could see, the world was continuing on just as always had. People lived and died, but nothing really changed. They concluded that God's promises were unreliable and that the universe was a stable, unchanging system where events like the second coming just don't happen. Their argument, although convincing to some people, was in reality a smokescreen for their pursuit of their own evil desires, as stated in verse 3. This expression describes two characteristics of these people. One, they are cynical about life and people in general. And two, they are preoccupied with themselves and their own needs. These kinds of people with these attitudes are the ones the Bible encourages us to love as we await the second coming of Jesus Christ. Back to our text, Peter goes on to describe these scoffers and their attitudes, verses 5 to 7. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that they that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. This section points out that although these false teachers knew the Old Testament, they chose to ignore them. Peter gives examples of how they made the conscious effort to deny God's intervention in the past. In verse 5, they deny that God spoke the world into creation. And in verse 6, they deny his judgment of the people in the time of Noah and his use of the flood to destroy the earth. Despite their scoffing and unbelief, God's word, just his word, created the heavens and the earth and subsequently destroyed them. God's word will again judge and destroy at the second coming, as pointed out in verse 7. One commentator I found shared this. The Old Testament consistently teaches that the cosmos is a moral universe created by God and that God will not let sin go unpunished forever. God is not only the creator of the universe, he is also the judge. The God who created the beginning of all things has the power to end them. Verses 8 to 10. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Do not overlook is the one imperative, the urgent thing that Peter is saying in this section. Judgment is still coming, but God is waiting so that as many as possible might be saved. My husband served as a pilot in the Navy for 24 years, during which he went on several deployments. One time a senior officer told him to never let your wife hear you whistling while you are packing for a deployment. For my hubby, flying a jet was everything he ever wanted but it meant that he would spend months away from his family. 
he was torn between his two loves, his family and his love of flying. The days of deployment dragged on forever for my girls and me, but they flew by for my husband, maybe because he was flying. I don't know why, but we definitely had different perspectives on the length of that time apart. I venture to say that our finite human brains cannot fathom the concept of time as God sees it. God was, is, and ever will be. So a thousand years to him is but a day. To us, it is about 15 lifetimes. Peter is trying to get his readers to understand that God is extremely patient and often overlooked attribute of God. Throughout the Old Testament, God is described as being slow to anger. The usual expression of God's patience is in regard to sin as he waits for people to come to repentance. Nehemiah 9.30 reads, Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Let's look back at the end of verse 9. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This verse is a wonderful reminder of God's love for the whole world. As we know from John 3:16. God does not even want the false teachers to perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance. The timing of Christ's return is troubling for us because we struggle with this concept. We are viewing his return from our point of view, how everything will be great. When Jesus returns, some will be left behind, and God views Christ's returns considering that fact. Unfortunately, the fact that God does not want people to perish is balanced against the sad truth that some do perish and are held for punishment on the day of judgment. Notice Peter's use of the word you instead of them. God is patient toward you as opposed patient to, toward them. God's patience has allowed these believers to be saved. God wants them and us to live the kind of life and demonstrate the kind of love that brings others to him so that others can be saved and will not perish. God also demonstrates his patience in carrying out his plans. I'm not sure how you feel, but I often, especially lately, feel like the bad guys seem to be winning. I often ask God, why is he taking so long to return? How bad do things have to get? How long do we have to wait? In the book of Psalms, the phrase, how long, is repeated about 17 times. And the majority of them are the writer's plea for God to rescue them or spare them from further anguish and pain. I found this quote that helped me change my perspective. We view Christ's second coming more impatiently than God because for us it means the end to all our problems, while for God it means that he has some whom he loves who will not make it into heaven. As God's people, we must show patience as we wait for him to act. We need to have a heart for the lost people in this world and align our hearts with God's heart. A great place to start is to be praying for those that are lost and ask God to help align our hearts with his. James 5 through 5, 7 to 8. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Back to our text. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. Elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Here Peter uses an important phrase, 
day of the Lord will come. The Greek word, verb for will come emphasizes that the day will certainly come. This phrase is used throughout scriptures to refer to God's judgment and salvation, the day when God will def definitively judge his enemies and vindicate the righteous. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul informs his readers how Jesus will return. Verse 2, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Jesus also warned his hearers to be ready for his coming, while explaining that he would arrive when people were not anticipating his coming. Matthew 24, 42-44, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. I became a believer when I was about 11. There was a movie made in 1972 called A Thief in the Night. I actually found it on YouTube the other day. I watched this movie a couple years after I became a believer, and I still can remember how frightened it made me. The movie starts with a young woman making, waking up to find that she has been left behind after the rapture. The man's voice coming from her bedside radio is quoting scripture regarding the rapture. The movie goes on to show events before the rapture, pastors preaching about the rapture, worship songs about the rapture, and then continues on as her community and the world react to the after events. I won't give away the ending. You'll have to watch it yourself. The point was that we never know when Jesus will return and we need to be ready. Peter goes on to describe what will happen to this world when Jesus does return. It will not be something that people will miss. It will have cosmic activity and be something people have never experienced before. I know in your homework, you were to list the three realms he mentions and what will happen in each. So I'm not going to go into that here. I will also say that I'm not sure our brains can comprehend what will happen as we've not witnessed something like this before. The many commentaries that I explored all had differing views of what Jesus's return would look like as well. Let's all just be watching and waiting. Let's go on. Verses 11 to 13. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? That, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Here, Peter is stressing there is an urgent need to be examples of godly living. He says all these things are thus to be dissolved. There will be an end to life as we know it. Notice the word godliness that is being used in verse 11. This is the same word used in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3, 6, and 7. He is continuing his call for these believers to grow in their maturity and to live a godly life, lives that are holy. Peter understands and wants the readers to understand that when people see them living holy and godly lives, they may come to a saving faith. 1 Peter 1 verse 15 reads, You also be holy, for I am holy. And here he is again imploring the readers 
to live holy lives, thus tying the two letters together. Let's look back at verse 12. This verse can give the impression that we as believers can in some, can in some way speed Jesus' return, that if there is repentance of more people, he will return sooner. I want to share a commentary explanation that gave me some clarity. This verse suggests that by living holy lives, Christians can actually affect the time of the Lord's return. That does not mean, of course, that the Lord has not foreknown and foreordained when Jesus will return. Look at Matthew 24, 36 and Acts 17, 30 to 31. But when God set that day, he also ordained that it would happen after all his purposes for saving believers and building his kingdom in this present age have been accomplished. And those purposes are accomplished when he works through his human agents to bring them about. Therefore, from a human perspective, when Christians share the gospel and others and pray and advance the kingdom of God in other ways, they do hasten the fulfillment of God's purposes, including Christ's return. Verse 13 refers to a new heaven and a new earth, which is a topic that is mentioned throughout the Old and New Testaments. However, it is not clear in these passages whether the new heavens and the new earth require complete destruction of the current heavens and earth or just a metamorphosis of the existing ones. This verse seems to be leaning toward complete destruction. Verse 14, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Here, Peter uses therefore to transition to the closing of his letter. Again, Peter brings the concept of waiting and being on watch and being prepared for Jesus's return. He's reminding them, again, to live a godly life. We also see his use of the phrase, to be found. This phrase has judicial overtones that remind the reader of being found guilty or innocent, as in a court of law. Peter urges the believers to work toward being found pure and blameless. This is a goal we are to strive for, not a condition that we will be able to achieve. Our struggle with sin will never finally end until our bodies themselves are redeemed. Verses 15 to 16, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own de destruction as they do the other scriptures. These two verses are very interesting as Peter brings the reader's attention to Paul and his letters to these believers. Paul was well-educated. He could think, write, and articulate in Greek. He was also a student of scripture and could use, very, use it very well to make his points. He was Jewish and as a young man likely learned about the scriptures in his home and from the local synagogue. We also know, according to Acts 22.3, that he came to Jerusalem and was trained by Gamaliel, a master of the Jewish oral law. But why would Peter bring him up here? Some scholars believe that the false teachers had taken Paul's writings about freedom from the law and had distorted them to support their own bad behaviors. Peter, like Paul, taught that believers must live in a godly way, so we know that they would support one another on this point. It is interesting that Peter says that some of Paul's writings may be hard to understand. I feel that way, and I'm pretty sure I'm not alone. His words can be intense, 
which should cause us to dig deeper. But obviously, some during Peter's time were twisting Paul's words and leading people astray. This is the reason we need to know the Bible for ourselves and not just let others tell us what it means. We can do this. God has given you all that you need to study and apply his word. I remember one of the first sermon series that was presented in this new building was called LifePoint Diner. The series dwelt on the fact that we need to feed ourselves on God's word. We should not rely on the pastors or the teachers to feed us. We need to have a routine that includes the habit of being in God's word and growing in our knowledge of it. I love how our senior pastor, Joe Duke, will often encourage us to not take his word on a biblical subject, but to investigate for ourselves. Do you think that the God that loves us so much would give us his word, his love letter to us, in such a way that we could not understand it? Do you think he would want us to be confused? I encourage you to begin each session with your Bible by praying and asking God for clarity and for him to show you what he wants you to learn that day. On to our final verses, verse 17. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Here's our transition word, therefore, again. Now Peter is at the end of his letter and giving his final words. Again, he calls them beloved, as he did in verse 14, which emphasizes the strength of their relationship. He gives them two imperatives, take care and grow. Take care that you don't lose your secure position by believing and following the false teachers. Over and over, he has stressed that they need to pursue godliness. Stay on the path. Do not allow yourself to be led astray. How do you keep from being led astray? Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter uses the word grace 10 times in 1 Peter, but only once in 2 Peter. Knowledge is used seven times in 2 Peter and only once in 1 Peter. One can conclude that grace is the central idea of 1 Peter and knowledge is the major theme of 2 Peter. With this verse, Peter links the two letters together and finalizes his thoughts. He seems to have poured his heart out to these people and his desires for them are very clear. He has been encouraging and cautionary. He has been loving and firm. He has been supportive and hopeful. The fishermen that showed faith in Jesus by putting out his nets one more time and stepping out of the boat to walk on the water to Jesus has grown into a gifted preacher and bold leader. The early believers often relied on him and turned to him for guidance. Thankfully, we can turn to these two letters that are so very applicable to our present day world and received guidance. Thanks for joining us for this study of First and Second Peter. Our prayer is that this study has broadened your Bible knowledge and has encouraged you to act as God has called us. We look forward to sharing our next study with you.